first edition of the BOQ podcast, a podcast that showcases the work of Seattle Pacific University's MFA alumni. I am Sarah Hudspeth and your first host. In this week's edition, we'll hear from three alumni, Annie Jolly, who writes about witnessing fires in Southern California, Andrew Graney, who reads poems from his graduate thesis collection, and Trip Librand, who reads a fictional account of events on the Syrian border. Witness is a really good theme for these pieces. Um, Each of the authors is sort of offering a perspective and sort of asking us to engage with uh, things that are before us. Um, Annie and her piece does a wonderful job of just witnessing nature, its beauty and its brutality as fires overtake her hometown in her backyard. Uh, Andrew... uh, is a very um, careful observer in his poems, and he is so gentle and powerful as he sort of describes and witnesses his body's decline as he um, wrestles with an MS diagnosis. And um, and Tripp's story, short story, um, is trying to witness and capture conflict and war in the Middle East um, through the lens of a bumbling American named Clinton and... Um, uh, all these pieces are sort of asking us to wrestle with different things and asking us to observe along with the narrators and speakers in the pieces. Um, and I don't really know how to segue this, uh, <laughs> but I've been rereading Elizabeth Bishop's poems recently. Um, we read them in the MFA program at my last residency, and her poem, The Monument, has this great sort of conclusion at the end of it um she bishop wrote or writes uh roughly but adequately it can shelter what is within which after all cannot have been intended to be seen it is a beginning of a painting a piece of sculpture or poem or monument and all of it would watch it closely um so the poem is the monument and it describes this wooden monument and she does this great job of just describing the monument, asking us to go and be with the, uh, the speaker of the poem um, and to ask really interesting questions of it. And, um, and then she throws this line, like, roughly but adequately can shelter what is within. And I think that is a great way to approach this podcast and these pieces is that there's something within. You know, we're seeing the outside. We're seeing the wooden artifacts. Um, boxes of a monument um, but it's housing some deeper things inside and um, I would just ask you to listen closely um, watch it closely and see what questions come up and see if you can figure out what questions um, the protagonists or speakers or narrators are are asking um, of themselves and also just of the world Um, this is the BOQ imagine the pleasure of sitting in a dim carpeted room with random freestanding pillars, a projector screen, and a sturdy old wooden podium. Imagine the reader of these works standing behind that podium, either gripping its sides or shuffling through papers nervously. Imagine that you're sitting in a lumpy love seat or dorm style chair and the Puget Sound is peeking in through the window on your left. 
if it's a sunny day, you may be able to look out the window and see the peaks of Mount Olympus in Washington. This is the BOQ, the old officer quarters in Camp Casey on Whidbey Island, and we're glad you're here. Hey everyone, Andrew Graney here, 2018 graduate of the SPU MFA, where poetry was my genre. I'm from Wilmington, Delaware, and I'm currently a teacher for the Institute of Reading Development. Some of the places that I've been published are Connotation Press, the American Journal of Poetry, Presence, and St. Catherine Re Review, among some other places. And this is my graduate reading revisited. This first poem is called after a night of music. It has changed some since graduation. It might change again, but this is how it is right now. After a night of music. You wake up and your head is a tire spinning in mud. And when you get out of bed, walking has become a foreign language. You might believe, as I did, this is one hell of a hangover. Although you drank no more than any other night, a hangover would be an explanation as you stagger through your day. If you're still mud-stuck the next morning, having not drunk the night before, it is probably not a hangover. But what else could explain this mud, this tripping over and over again on nothing but the two feet God gave you? It's probably just a pinched nerve, you figure an inner ear infection. But on the third day, when you rise, your left side has gone completely numb, and you accept this is no hangover. In the coming mornings, you have MRIs, blood work, a spinal tap. You receive a life sentence. It's multiple sclerosis. A life full of problem swallowing, of tremors in your hands. Electric shock coursing through your spine. Blind spots, fatigue, death-heavy limbs, memory of muscle memory. Now, when you stumble on the lawn at shows, you joke about how it's a good thing you don't work in stocks, always losing balance. How you might break into a beef jerky factory just to see something get cured. How, who knows, maybe you're a shit person. And God has done this injustice. Your friend has taken your hand and put it on his shoulder so you can walk through the crowd. You're obviously the worst, he says. The next one is called Multiple Sclerosis Diary. And this one uh, has been published in the American Journal of Poetry since graduation. Here we go. Multiple Sclerosis Diary. December 17th. My left foot stayed dead cold for much of today, like I have one foot already in winter. December 18th. Focusing is like trailing smoke as it meets its afterlife. December 19th. Annual MRI today. My cold left foot cannot escape the feeling that I'm wearing too small a shoe. But my shoes fit, and I'm barefoot. December 20th. 
Fatigue rises and descends like two hands coming together to flatten a fly. December 21st. The doctor calls. My brain's lesions continue to grow, he tells me. I repeat the words again and again. Continue to grow. This third poem is called The Day-to-Day of This Disease. We love jokes, my friends and I. So they came quickly when I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. We were playing pool when I divulged my test results. And after offering their hands for anything I might need, one friend also offered, at least it's not exponential sclerosis, as I hit the cue successfully on a second attempt. Laughing, and so not afraid, the whole night through we showed my new disease how things work around here, how they would remain. What happens now? Another friend asked. Do you have to change your nightly news from NBC to MSNBC? I do, I said. I'm still getting used to it. I'm lucky I already use MS Word. But the truth is, I am lucky. In the day-to-day of this disease, symptoms can pop up like some twisted game of whack-a-mole. One day, my leg might spasm. Or my mind. Sometimes, because of my fatigue medication, nothing can put me to sleep. Today, my heel cords hurt. Still, most days are pretty every day. I wake up, put the coffee on, and work. Like you, maybe. This next poem, called Headache, has been published at Connotation Press. Headache. Here comes the fog again, and the thoughts it will take. I think of medicine, of my upcoming neurologist visit, of the work I need to do. I think of a woman on a distant coast. Then I think of Kim Basinger, or rather, her character in Eight Mile. The scene where she breaks out of a canatomic stupor and yells at her son. Her boyfriend just left her because he saw her eviction notice. Who's gonna want me now? What am I gonna do? How could I be more than a headache when I can hardly keep my head up past noon? I eat lunch. And any romance might as well exist in some unreachable California. When the fog rolls in, that is the lie I almost believe. As if green land and black roads didn't connect our coasts, and words were in a way of walking with someone. As if, talking with her, I couldn't let go. Here comes the fog again. As if she couldn't take it. Poem number five is my last MS poem in my graduate reading, and it's called Stand Up. I wake up down because the woman who gives me goose flesh didn't call me back. 
then walk downstairs and am surprised to see my mother's not at work. Your MRI shows signs of MS in the brain. Okay. Finally. After all, the fucking blood work taunting me with negatives, pure diagnosis comes as a gift. Something physical to rip me out of swirling dark and back into daylight. Finally. A concrete reason for my dizziness, my numbness, and my limp. Something I can name. Scars in my brain. New material for my stand-up. My blood's got so much work done it deserves a raise. If you know any, if you know anyone looking for scars, I got multiple. So she didn't call me back. George Carlin said death is caused by swallowing small amounts of saliva over a long period of time. Meantime, every swallow is a blessing. I'll stand up until I don't. Eventually, love must call. Okay, that wraps up the MS portion of the reading. This next poem is called, As the day darkens too early, I'm listening to the brave kind's dogs. And as many of you know, the brave kind is fellow MFA MFA or Megan Sexton is her and her sister's band. So the poem again, as the day darkens too early, I'm listening to the brave kind's dogs. Listen and you'll hear a man is hiding from the dogs that chase him down. But you won't hear where he's hiding for the singer, the only one who sees him keeps his confidence. He's someone she knows well, or is at least a person with whom she feels connected. He's smoking, and moving past his cigarette, she kisses him, tasting not smoke, not just smoke, but the guy himself, the vague outline and weight of his flaws, regrets. Her kiss is a form of listening, a style of singing the song's chorus and hook. Survive with me, she purposes. It hits me like morning. Poem number seven, I think. The philosophy professor to his class on the first day. If we consider a minute, or even a second, this minute moment, always going and gone, we will discover it is ineffable in its depth. For within each slice of time exists another rather slimmer shaving, a sliver composed of interminably more and slighter splinters, and so on, and so on and on, Time's ability to shrink grows, like the ultimate Russian nesting doll. Still, doesn't time expand outward, move onward? How else would we learn, say, to count or extend a hand when others count on us? A day seems to stem from an hour, a minute, 
second. And yet eternity remains inside them all? If time does progress, how? Until next time, let's ponder these questions. Okay, now we have the crossover. This poem is dedicated to my brother Michael. The crossover. How to dribble a basketball. My brother taught me when I was two. It is the first thing I remember learning before colors, letters. The neighborhood court is the alphabet of my childhood. It taught me love before I knew the word. Before I loved language, it revealed poetry. Missed shots were bricks. Defense was traffic. Threes came from downtown. The ball was the rock. Sunny afternoons, I'd come home from school and change my clothes. Walk straight to the court for my self-given homework. My brother could dribble between his legs without even looking down. Smooth as water. And more than a little NBA aspirant wants to dunk, I wanted to do that. The crossover. The hallmark of good handles. Eyes forward. Grace at my fingertips. Portrait of a family of three out for dinner. Scratching his head, the father looking up at the white ceiling. The mother's chest raised as if she's getting ready to let go a sigh that has been building up for years in the dark of her lungs. Not yet touched steak and mashed potatoes on their plates. Chicken wings for the son, who's reaching for a napkin. Face red, hot sauce wringing his lips after just one bite. He looks like a sloppy clown but no one's laughing. From the looks of it, rotten news just revealed or about to be. Who can say what the future holds for them? Her chest will never relax. He'll always be looking up and scratching. The parents' plates will always be full of meat and potatoes they will never taste. The sun will never soothe his burning lips. Wipe his hands clean. The rest of his wings will always be waiting for him. My last poem, called Boarding a Red Eye in Phoenix, I Hear a Man Talking on His Phone, actually happened because of a delay coming home from Santa Fe, one of the residencies. Me and Kara Strickland had to wait a while with the delay, and then my flight got rerouted to Phoenix, and I got this poem out of it. And it's modeled in part after a poem by Alexander Long from his collection Light Here, Light There, called Kissing Lesson. So again, my poem, Boarding a Red Eye in Phoenix, I Hear a Man Talking on His Phone. He sounds tired, deflated. Still, he leaks hope, like he's just discovered a sort of air pump for his spirit. I had such a good time with her today. She said, Papa, are you going to be able to play hide-and-seek with me again?
I told her, yes, when I get back from my trip. She said, Papa, you hide and I camp. I said, okay. So, may he return to his child. May his home always be hers. May they laugh and laugh and laugh before and after problems inevitably rise again like vapor to form clouds over their common ground. May hide-and-seek be, once and for all, only a game. May she find him wherever. My name is Trip Librand. I live in Houston, Texas with my wife, Danny, our daughter, Leon, and our soon-to-be-born son, Quade. While the story I'm reading is fiction, it's my attempt to find meaning in what I saw and heard while working in Jordan with Syrian refugees. I'm currently writing a novel that grew from this story and a few others in my MFA manuscript. Thanks for letting me share my work. God, I know not. War is harder to find than you may think. It exists everywhere. At any given time, there is some of it going around. But it must be fenced in, given an air of exclusivity, an arena impossible to leave, yet difficult and strange to enter. Quinton arrived in Mafrock after several pleasant but anxious days in Amman. His fixer had been more than happy to take his money, but was not obliged to actually fix him. This became clear after 30 minutes of standing outside the gates of a Roman ruin, waiting for a white van with red lettering that never arrived. Feeling very American, rebellious, self-determined, and in a rush, he took to the internet and found the border of Syria and then a border town, Mafrak. If the free enterprise of the internet has killed the travel agent, why should it not do the same to the fixer? Quentin scanned the world through the hazy windshield, it was a paved street. Dust was visible in the air. People were wandering, passing and staring, but there was no fence in view, nothing that looked like a border. His taxi driver kept the car stopped. Quinton looked over at him. The driver threw his cigarette out the window, gave a thumbs up, swung his hand in a half circle with palm up and said, Mafrak. Quinton opened his door and got out. The car strained. He retrieved his backpack from the back seat and set it in the front where he had ridden. He fumbled with zippers and pockets till he found his wallet. Beside him, a voice shouted. It frayed through a microphone, grainy like the air around him. He had heard it muffled through the window when they first arrived, and it was a foreign tongue. But now he heard English. The best prices. We have the best. Best rice. Best fruit. Best cleaning supplies. Come right in, sir. If he was not speaking to Quentin, then who? Bringing his wallet close to his chest, he turned his head and sought out the yelling salesman. He saw no man, but there was a corner store, something like a bodega. As the list of common objects grew into a crescendo, he attempted to discreetly pull a bill from his wallet to pay the driver. A whole stack of cash began to dislodge. He shoved it back and tried for the single strip of paper again. The yelling, the task under pressure, the foreignness, all preparation for the chaos of war. He had finally crafted a goal large enough that all else bowed to it. The driver said no word of thanks and left Quentin in a small cloud of exhaust moments after he shut the door. He waited for the cloud to dissipate, then craned his head up and breathed in, a centering and calming practice. 
He was trying on rituals, knowing the need for something small to stand in for all truth, but not yet knowing what that was. The air was not fresh, but the sky was blue. After hours in a car that at first reminded him of his grandmother, but after a time only reeked of smoke-to-the-nub cigarettes, anything was a relief, even car exhaust, roasting meat, and dirt. He left the street and angled toward the sidewalk that curved around the front of the store. There were no windows, which explained further the volume of the mic salesman. He found the flow of people on the sidewalk quick and uneven. He was always in someone's way. He pressed forward until he was able to step out of the stream and into the threshold of the store. The salesman could see him now and pointed right at Quentin, waving and beckoning him in, all the while keeping up the list of items. He was an older man with a belly that stretched the stripes of his college shirt and large tinted glasses from decades ago. His mustache was black and heavy like it was full of sweat. He stood in the middle of the store, microphone in hand, portable speaker at his feet, the shoppers moving about him like a statue. Quentin considered the quality of his English. Perhaps this was the man who could help him make sense of the world and lead him to the border. He would have approached him, but another sound called. Shouts of anger amplified by nothing more than lung straining, fraying in their own way, louder and more urgent than the chant of a salesman. Quentin moved hurriedly through the stream of people, knocking against shoulders, slipping past the slow paced. At the end of the street, he turned left. He was not pulled by a sense of valor or a desire to assist the angered and urgent voices. His heart had not yet been trained for instinctual heroics. He was beckoned by the impression that he must see this, must witness whatever chaos he could in preparation for the chaos he would soon enter. Though the two men were only 20 feet from the main street where the line of people steadily moved back and forth, they were isolated, or at least ignored. Some boys watched from behind a parked van. An old man stood in his doorway. They were killing each other, up and then down, rolling on the asphalt, one punching the other in the head shoving it into the street. Then taking him by the black hair, he dragged the side of his head back and forth over the road. Quentin gawked with the others and thought of the delicate form of the ear being grated against the texture of the pavement. Quentin dropped his bag and ran toward them. This was not the action of a hero either, not yet. This was the panic of a boy struck blind to the harsh light of the world's possible cruelty. No longer possible, but true and before you. He wanted it to stop, not for care of either man, but because it was too much to bear. He dove and tackled the man on top, whose arms were slowing in exhaustion, but nevertheless continuing their established task. The force was enough to separate the men. He and the man he tackled rolled together as Quentin held him. When they settled, Quentin was on top. He released his hold, sat up, and straddled the man, pinning him with the weight of his body. He smelled blood, saw it on the man's face, on his chest, which was exposed, the tan shirt open and half-buttonless. He tasted the blood-like hint of adrenaline on the back of his own tongue. He smelled the musk of the man's cologne. The man made no attempt at movement. Quentin shifted off of him, laid a hand on his chest, rising and falling desperate, and squatted beside him while he looked back at the man he had saved, who had not moved from where he was rescued. His face was ballooned and colored like inner flesh, his chest was an even and stagnant plain. Beside him was a puddle of white feathers and the deflated body of a bird. Quentin craned up at the sky, which was still an unsaturated cerulean. 
It provided enough context or transcendence, something, that he was able to remember there was a world beyond these characters he had cast himself among. He noticed that a thin circle of people had formed, pulled from the traffic of the main street, some head-to-toe in black, some in suits, some pink and green headscarves. A man and woman approached him. They were white and seemed concerned. The man bent beside him. Quentin didn't meet his eyes, but watched the woman fetch the backpack he'd forgotten. Are you okay? Quentin didn't respond, but looked at him. Are you okay? Do you speak English? He was American, maybe a Midwesterner, young, younger than Quentin. He had black scruff on the sides of his face, down to his jaw, like an old sailor. Yeah, I do. I... Quentin gently patted the chest of the man he had tackled. I didn't do this. I... He pointed at the motionless man and bird. Stumbled upon this. They were like that. I know. Those kids watched you try and stop it. Amy has your bag and is going to take you to her church. I'll handle this. You don't speak Arabic, do you? No. He lifted Quentin and Amy came beside him, looking up, shielding her eyes from the sun. You good to walk? Yeah, Quentin responded and considered her non-American accent. She wore his backpack and her own satchel. Quentin didn't notice this or the eyes of the crowd watching him. She handed his bag back to him when they reached a white painted metal gate with a large flat cross welded to it, which she unlocked and then locked again when they slipped through. She led him through rooms. He kept no memory of them. She gave him a styrofoam cup filled with water. I'm late for our morning chapel. You can come with me or stay in there on the couches. Your choice. Maybe she was British, but a kind not represented in movies. He couldn't picture the couches she referenced or the room. He was lost without her. I'll go with you, he let out after finishing a sip. She led him through heavy wood doors and shut them silently. Tire floor, an area up front that was the stage, but not raised. They sat in the middle, back pew. A band of what looked like teenagers were playing music, and the audience was singing along in many accents at many volumes. Quentin startled himself with the recognition that he was in a church. He had not avoided them, but he had managed not to visit one for a decade, or at least five years. He'd been to weddings, but they were ceremonies, where the church was only a structure with a heightened aesthetic. Despite his absence, he recognized the song. He remembered the freedom to sit and bow your head on the back of the pew in front of you, or against your folded hands. A contemplative posture, or one of repentance, whatever it was, the music was stirring your soul so that the words could not continue to be sung. He sat and rested his head on the pew. His leg was shaking. He clamped his hand upon it and steadied it until it stopped. He whispered a few of the lyrics like a poem as a way to calm himself. He hadn't realized how weak he felt. After the songs, he sat back, watched the preacher, and drank his water. The message was short, even though every sentence was repeated in translation by the preacher himself. Quentin grasped nothing in the English or Arabic version. A young man came up next, maybe 30. Quentin thought they were similar in age. He wore a black t-shirt with graphic roses patterned over it. His eyes were dark and shadowed under his brow. He was sober, composing himself in sorrow, like an amateur performer of a love song or a disgraced politician. He says his friend Jeremiah was serving in the military. The pastor translated for the young man in the flower shirt. He was one year into the two-year term all Egyptians must serve in the army. 
Last week, he was stationed to guard a church where Christians were worshiping on a Sunday morning. A terrorist, sorry, many terrorists, approached the building and started shooting. Daesh, you know? He and his fellow soldiers shot back. Jeremiah was very brave and ran out, bravely shooting and attacking the terrorists. The Egyptian soldiers were able to fight off the attackers and save the Christians in the church. Jeremiah was killed, so let us pray for him. He was doing his duty for his country, but more than that, we know he was serving God. He was engaged to be married in January. Let us pray for his fiancée. Quentin bowed his head, but did not pray. He wondered if the pastor was a man who could help him. Oh, how long will injustice reign on the earth? If Jesus is in Syria, won't he be on the side of the innocent, the children, and the rebels who protect them? If Quentin's life and name ended on the lips of the righteous, praying for a sacrificed soul, that would be a justified existence. With the conclusion of the prayer, the service ended. The woman with the strange British accent, he had already forgotten her name, shook his hand limply and said she had to go. She was immediately replaced by the young man who had pulled him from the violence outside. I explained what I saw to the police. They don't need to see you. Quentin felt no relief as the possibility of being required to speak to the authorities hadn't crossed his mind. And what about the men? The one is dead, the other's in jail. What were they fighting over? That dove, pigeon, whatever it was, it's dead too. Quentin pursed his lips, looked down into the young man's eyes, but had no words. Yeah, it's sad. That's the world we live in. But praise God we have Jesus. He grinned as he said this. His cheeks rippled under the old sailor facial hair. Whatever joy or hope shaped such a face wasn't a joke, but Quentin had a strong, innate desire to call him a fucking liar. Instead, in a stable and low voice, Quentin said, I'm looking for a way into Syria. Quentin was weaker than he realized. With his confession, he was coming to terms with the simple facts that he had shoved a murderer off the body of a dead man. He had seen a dead body before anyone made it seem less dead, over a damned bird. He hunched over and laid his palms on the back of the pew, head bowed. Again he was led through the rooms lacking detail. He drank more water. He ate bread with something spread on it. He was riding in the front seat of a sedan, driven by an older white man in an aqua fishing shirt. He did not doubt that he had agreed to this, but he was having difficulty recalling what this was. He didn't care in the moment if it was leading toward or away from his goal of reaching Syria. For the first time since departing from America, he questioned whether he was capable of fighting in a war. Camping trips, training events with the grassroots Texas militia, the memorization of survival books. It was like he had been studying for the wrong test. He needed the skills to get his mind right. He needed a deep glass of bourbon. He craned forward trying to find the sky at the edge of the windshield and center himself. The angle was wrong. He remembered the man's name was John. Maybe small talk would settle Quentin. Is your wife here with you, John? No, I don't have a wife. He had a serious voice, cavernous and staccato. Oh, I saw the ring, that's all. This, he took his hand from the wheel, tapped his thumb against the golden ring. I was married. My wife died in Beirut two years ago, an accident with the military. This was a foreign land, of course, but even the intensity of grief was foreign and demanded a new tongue, new words to describe trouble or any commiseration. 
Again, Quentin was without words. Have you been doing this long? Quentin switched subjects. Working with Syrian refugees? John kept his eyes ahead. A large work truck was barreling through the narrow street. No, I mean, the church work, missionary or whatever. Yes, 35 years. I found my calling early. They parked outside of school. John led them down a narrow walkway between two high concrete walls with green leaves draping over. They reached a dented red metal door, partway open. John placed a hand on Quentin's shoulder and stopped him from entering, telling him first to remove his shoes. They were greeted by a small girl with a missing tooth and a bouncy ball. She threw and caught the ball, smiled and waved to John, then ran inside. John said something about the girl, but not loud enough for Quentin to understand. They turned right through a large entryway into a smaller but still spacious room, with a large rug in the middle and red cushions lining the walls. Quentin followed John's lead and shook the hand of a man standing near the door. He was short, with masks that he carried well in his chest and shoulders. He had a crew cut, and it's strange to say, he had luscious lips. There was something in his eyes like light or joy. All three sat down on cushions, the host on one wall, John and Quentin on the other. Another little girl, even smaller, sat in the corner and scribbled a purple marker outside the lines of a coloring book. John and the man spoke in Arabic for long enough that Quentin found himself watching the girl color, her loops growing and tightening without order. Quentin heard John say his name. He glanced up and saw the man smiling at him. Quentin smiled back. John was explaining that Quentin was not from the church, but wanted to meet refugees. Quentin wondered if he was telling the man about his heroics earlier that morning. Quentin, John spoke sonorous. Let me quickly tell you Bulas' story. Quentin watched Bulas' eyes as John described the man's life like a condensed and memorized biography. He was a prison guard in the Saad's army. He was a torturer of the rebels when the war started. The Syrian army deployed chemical weapons on rebels in the town where Bulas and his family lived. Two of his daughters were exposed. He could do nothing and watch them die over several days. He wanted nothing to do with the war then, and he and his family fled, hiding in a truck full of sheep. Bulas was smiling at Quentin now, but only guessed at where John was in the story. He felt such shame about the men he had hurt as a torturer. He wanted forgiveness, but couldn't find it. When he reached Mofrock, Jesus appeared to him in a dream. Jesus gave him forgiveness, and he followed him. John ceased speaking, and Bulas shook his head while continuing to smile toward Quentin. He said softly, Amen. A woman in a loose peach dress entered the room with a bronze platter and four small glasses of tea. She briefly smiled at each man as she lowered the platter and allowed them to take a glass. She served Quentin last. He touched the glass, clear and about the size of two shots. It was hot. He pinched it gently at the rim and brought it to his lips, only to breathe in a small taste from the top. It was like sweet southern iced tea only hot. He placed it on the rug beside his knee. He sat cross-legged. John took out reading glasses and opened a large book, which was clearly a Bible. He turned to Quentin and, peering over the top of his glasses, said he was going to read the parable of the talents. Quentin nodded and knew at some point in his life he had heard the story. He wouldn't be hearing it again today because John started speaking Arabic and didn't stop until the lesson was over. Bulas said something and John translated, as the question was directed to Quentin. He wants to know if you have anything to share. No, I don't have anything to share. I guess I have a question. 
John cut him off and translated, Once you realized how evil your government could be and knew you were on the wrong side, why didn't you stay and fight for the good guys? John cocked his head, considering an initial response in English, but then faithfully translated. Bulas' response was immediately, The good guys. I think you mean the dead. There are no good guys left in Syria. From Bulas' house, they traveled to a poorer part of town. Quentin couldn't picture poorer when John initially used the term, but they turned off a paved road onto one of dirt, and there was no better description. They walked through the furrows of a field that had been tilled, but nothing grew. The building ahead was squat and dirt brown. Inside, all the surfaces were a dusty green concrete. John had not met this man before. They each sat down on a cushion with the stuffing falling out. There was no rug. The man was all bones and was going blind. He had been captured by the Syrian army, though he wasn't a rebel, and tortured. Both legs broken, nine of ten fingers broken, and drowned once. He had no tea to serve them. He apologized. He didn't need John to share anything, only to listen. John translated for Quentin. After his body had mended, he was still broken because his soul wouldn't heal. He couldn't forgive those who tortured him. Then he came to Mofrock, had a dream of Jesus in white, and he taught him how to forgive. Through his cloudy eyes, he watched Quentin and pointed a finger at him. You don't know how wonderful forgiveness is until you know how evil man is. He laughed then. Quentin felt he was watching a drunk man experiencing the world in a foreign and unintelligible way. When they returned to the church, John laid a hand on Quentin's shoulder and prayed for him. Quentin couldn't listen to the prayer, so distracted by the perfect parallels of the men's stories and their faith and forgiveness. Too fucking perfect. A polished body at a funeral when life was really the bloated, bloody face of a man smelling faintly of Armani lying by a dead bird. An old woman with a covered head who sounded American or Dutch took him upstairs to a room full of bunk beds. She laid a single white towel on the bed she marked as his. She said dinner would be in an hour downstairs and that the sunset was pretty on the roof. Quentin wanted to ask where downstairs, but he figured he could find his way by following others or at least the smell. He thanked her. They were unquestionably nice, though it was unclear how long the situation would last or what the exact stipulations were. No one else was in the room, but shirts and shoes were strewn about, luggage stored under the beds. It was clear at night the room would be full of men, wheezing and grunting in their sleep. He left the room and found a set of stairs that took him to a landing, and from it another flight up emptied him onto the roof. It was large and flat, tables and chairs set at the edge. There were several other guests huddled and laughing. He avoided them and took a lone seat near the edge. He faced out with elbows on knees, chin on fists, and watched over the city. He seemed to be on top of the tallest building in the small town. There was another church across the street, ornate, probably Catholic. The red and white of a radio tower cut narrow, fragmenting into the sky. The buildings were all shades of dull earth. Straggles of rebarb grew out of the side of walls and columns always ready to take on another floor, another room. He was sure he could see Syria if he only knew the direction to look, and if the dust wasn't consuming the edges of the town in a neutral gauze. The sun was setting into a smudged-out horizon. It reminded him of the last night on a road trip through New Mexico, 
Car horns, jangling motors, and cellars with miked and praying voices jumbled below. Street after street with potential for dumb violence milling about, always more. Above it there was peace. Three roofs in front of Quentin, a small door opened and a man in a white, robe-like garment walked out. He moved toward a cage and bent in front of it. He stepped back and opened his arms. A spray of birds came from the cage and began to fly about the city. They clung together as a throbbing patch and soon revealed their circle pattern, around and around, high above their white-clad owner. He stared up and watched them, gray, white, and tan, all dark against the glory of the setting sun, a sliver of joy that two boys felt worth death. Quentin had no words. Nearby, he heard the soft rattle of wings and turned, searching for the sound. Across the roof, above the door he came through, were two sparrows. The door was embossed with a cross, for crosses riddle the church. The sparrow couple had made their home in the warmth of an electrical box, shelved into the stucco wall, something good, huddled and near at hand. Hi, I'm Annalise Jolly, and this is my essay titled Fire Season. I'm a journalist and essayist who lives in San Diego. I cover food, travel, faith, and the terrain between. You can view more of my work or just say hello at AnnaliseJolly.com. Fire Season. The story behind the Jesusita fire is this. Two men were hacking weeds in the backcountry. Their power tools raised brush to the ground. The May sun seared hot against their backs, the air dry and still. When they finished clearing the area, they wiped sweat from their necks. One man swept his hand under his jaw to catch the drops. The other took off his hat and shaded his eyes to survey their work. Brush lay heaped in golden piles, pyres waiting for a match. Satisfied, the men cut their engines and walked back to their trucks. Somewhere in the brush, electrical sparks simmered, seeds ready to spring into riotous life. Sundowner winds began to blow. During fire season in Santa Barbara, the air becomes tinted white. The brush on hiking trails pops underfoot like tinder catching. Chaparral crackles with thirst, dry as kindling, dry as bone. Wildfire risk is highest in late summer and fall, but blazes can catch as early as spring and continue through November. At least, that's how it used to be. Locals know when fire season begins and how to prepare. They can distinguish sundowner and Santa Ana winds from regular gusts. Homeowners pull out ladders and trim tree branches near the chimney. Families make evacuation plans and decide what to take with them. Photos, pets, wills. Santa Barbara is geographically insulated, cocooned by natural walls. Seen from above, the coastline forms a bowl filled with ocean. To the east, the San Ynez Mountains ring the city. To the west, the Pacific hems it in. When fires roar down from the hills, they have nowhere to go but toward the sea and through the city that sits between. This topographical dilemma is also what has drawn people to the city for decades. Celebrities and vacationers and Los Angeles residents on weekend getaways. It's why Santa Barbara provides the backdrop for movie scenes and postcards and gift shops. That mountain sand sea snapshot is a picture of Southern California's best offerings. Santa Barbara's beauty is why people come and it's why people stay. Even as the cost of living grows exorbitant, even as income inequality yawns, even as the mountains combust. 
I grew up here, upper middle class in one of the country's wealthiest pockets. Of the city, travel writer and longtime resident Pico Iyer said, More important than the sights is what's between the sights and between the lines. In Santa Barbara, even the everyday things take you to places of such beauty. When I was young, this beauty seemed uncomplicated, a pristine backdrop for my charmed childhood. I loved the chaparral-lined hiking trails where my family took our Labrador on Saturday mornings. I loved the mountain view near my dad's downtown office, where I could watch the peaks deepen to violet as the sun dipped low. The Jesusita fire caught in early May 2009. I was a senior in high school, and California was deep in drought, as it so often is. Usually wildfires started as summer drained away, their smoke hanging over tennis season and simmering afternoons. During these months, the San Ynez Mountains were a snuffed-out blue against the sky. My team hit tennis balls back and forth on courts parched as the mountain trails and ran suicides between the lines, our fingertips brushing hot clay. The wooden sign by the fire department hovered over high for months. The black arrow pressed all the way down to the right like a broken speedometer. But Santa Barbara doesn't have a wildfire season anymore. The brush burns year-round. With drought and a shifting climate comes fires that no one can predict or contain. And so, May 2009, not fire season, but already hot and bearing down on summer. The foothills were tender, irritated and ready to snap at the slightest provocation. Sparks from the power tools tore through the chaparral and soon the city could see plumes rising from the mountains. I noticed the smoke columns when I walked to my car after English class that afternoon, crossing the radiating asphalt of the high school parking lot. Students pointed and leaned out their windows, yelling to each other to look up. The lot buzzed with our giddiness. Wildfires meant school would be canceled, a California snow day. The Santa Ana winds blew in from the desert and gusted hair into my face and mouth. These are winds of incendiary dryness, in Joan Didion's words. At the first prediction of a Santa Ana, she wrote, the Forest Service flies men and equipment from Northern California into the Southern forests, and the Los Angeles Fire Department cancels its ordinary non-firefighting routines. Her point being, Santa Ana winds mean wildfire. We knew this, but we didn't know quite enough to be afraid. My family got our evacuation orders late that afternoon when Jesusita had already burned for hours. Our house sat below the foothills and the police call was, if not routine, not surprising either. We packed the car with overnight bags, file boxes, and our dog and headed across town to a family friend's house. Driving through the evacuation zone, we were slowed by a line of cars pulling over to the side of the road. The road ran uphill toward the mountains and cars parked bumper to bumper in the shoulder. The fire had left Highway 154 and was surging down the hills, drowning acres of dry brush and open fields. People climbed onto the roofs and hoods of their cars to get a better view as the fire raced toward them. Waves of smoke broke over the mountain peaks. The air thrummed with a rushing sound. Police drove up and down the road with megaphones and urged gawkers to return to their cars before they became trapped. But people kept fluttering closer to the flames. They parked their cars and stepped over guardrails to get closer, cameras held aloft, tugged forward by the light. Dads with binoculars around their necks stood on the edge of the road, mouths slack. Moms lifted toddlers to their hips and pointed at the approaching tide, 
the same way people point to the Grand Canyon or a new moon. I rolled down the window. Heat pressed against the sides of my face and neck, and my arm trailed through the air as if through warm water. It smelled acrid and thick. The sun had set, but the night grew brighter with every minute. I pressed my lips closed against the smoke and watched the flames dance and descend, my eyelids blinking back the heat. It seemed wrong to spectate, and yet, like everyone else, I couldn't turn away. I remember the hum of recognition I felt when I first read Robinson Jeffers' poem about a fire in the hills of Northern California. It begins like this. The deer were bounding like blown leaves under the smoke in front the roaring wave of the brush fire. I thought of the smaller lives that were caught. Beauty is not always lovely. The word awe originally pointed to bone-deep fear bordering on dread. Later, when it mixed with the religious sensibility of the Middle Ages, it came to indicate reverence. A god who was awful, for example, was a god who inspired awe. The Oxford English Dictionary pinpoints the shift away from awe and towards something monstrous around the early 1800s, giving us the word awful that we employ today. How awful, we murmur to each other when reading about something tragic in the news. So there is awful, and then there is awe-full, and wildfires encompass both. These disasters elicit awe in all its forms, and we are both drawn to and repelled by the annihilating light. When we arrived at our friend's home beyond the evacuation zone, concern about the hasty seat of fire drifted from our minds. The atmosphere at the house was festive. Several families from our church crowded around the kitchen counter, eating cheese and crackers. Van Morrison crooned from the speakers. The sliding doors in the living room opened to a view of the mountains and the smell of smoke, faint like a barbecue, sifted through the screen. We watched the light leak away and the mountains glow brighter, patches of yellow and gold standing out against the dusk. When the sky turned dark, someone suggested walking to the nearby mesa for a better view. Lawn chairs and blankets in hand, we trooped to the open preserve like we did every July to watch red, white, and blue explode over the harbor. The flat expanse gave us a wide view of the mountains, and we sat facing them in a row. The mesa was silent, except for the muffled sounds of sirens and helicopters stuttering above, circling the blaze like flies. Dry grass crackled under the aluminum poles of the chairs. My boyfriend was there, and we sat next to each other, holding hands inside his sweatshirt pocket. The fire had grown, billowing outward and descending on the city. It seemed to breathe heat, swelling and contracting in different places. In the dark, the flames looked liquid, a molten heat. They trickled down the hills and rivulets like streams of rain on a window. Colors blazed every temperature of gold. The mountains were dotted with points of light as though a hand had scattered embers across their face. The smoke was obscured by the night and the dark peaks erased into the sky. All we could see was light and flame. On the night we watched Jesusita burn, the San Ynez peaks were obscured in the haze of smoke, a screen on which the heat projected its images. Fires pulsed and shivered as though lignite coal mines had split open from underground. I turned to look at our line of spectators, each face upturned, their heads dark against the bright picture of mountains and flame. Even as we marveled, homes were shattering under the heat, beams creaking and walls collapsing with a sigh. Think about all the people who are watching their houses burn right now, my dad said. My boyfriend leaned his head toward mine. 
It's beautiful, he whispered, and I nodded. Depending on where you stand in the city, you might notice Santa Barbara's different colors, or you might not. For many years, Santa Barbara looked, to me, very white. My church and my public school classes and my friends reflected back my own skin. But 44% of the city is Hispanic or Latino, cultures from the South seeping into the food, the architecture, the language. This influence gives the city its warmth. Spanish flows in and out of the city's noises, so endemic it seems like even the crows know it, like they are speaking it as they shout to each other from the eucalyptus trees. Depending on where you stand in the city, you might notice Santa Barbara's inequality, or you might not. When I was young, I knew that people slept on State Street, sheltered under the awnings of high-end retail stores, but I didn't see much more than that. For years in her work as a physical therapist, my mom visited patients' homes in every corner of town. In the morning, she might drive to an estate tucked in the green hills of Montecito, Santa Barbara's affluent enclave and celebrity hideout. In the afternoons, she'd drive a short way down the hill to an apartment on the east side, where bedrooms housed entire families. Grandmothers, children, and nephews shared these small rooms furnished with roll-up beds and hot plates. In both the cavernous living rooms in Montecito and the one-room homes on the east side, my mom bent in front of her patients and stretched their legs straight, guiding them through exercises, coaxing weak muscles back to strength. Jacaranda trees overhead frothed their purple blossoms to the roof and sidewalk, carpeting everything in color. I researched Santa Barbara's inequality, the inequality I didn't see as a child. Years later, when I try to make sense of how a city like this could shelter both celebrities and families who share a single bedroom. I read that Santa Barbara County holds the highest child poverty rate in California. The city's high cost of living means that many people with a steady income can't afford housing, transportation, or medical bills, yet they earn too much to qualify for assistance. In Santa Barbara, poverty is different and in some ways tougher, I read. In other words, you might earn above the poverty line and still be poor in this incongruous place. When wildfires catch, the first homes to go are usually the most expensive, estates set high in the hills with acreage and ocean views. Yet a wildfire side effects soon seep down into the city. Those who work outside in construction or landscape jobs suffer heat exposure, or they go without work when the city shuts down. Migrant farm workers keep laboring without masks, and people without homes sleep under a blanket of ash. Those with chronic health problems face unexpected hospital visits triggered by smoke inhalation. My family's evacuation during Jesusita meant several days of diversion and disrupted schedules. For another family, a wildfire might mean falling behind on bills or into homelessness. It's been a decade since I moved away from Santa Barbara, and at times I still feel my hometown like a phantom limb. The scent of eucalyptus, even thousands of miles away, can hijack me. Ever since leaving, I've tried to write about Santa Barbara and its landscape. The shiver of shadow on whitewashed stucco, the brush of olive branches, the descending scales of bougainvillea over sandstone walls. I want to write about my hometown because it is beautiful, but to call something beautiful does not mean uncomplicated or even good. When fires burn in the city, as they do now every year, I monitor them remotely. I check the news on my phone and text my parents and friends. This is what I was doing in December of 2017 when a small brush fire caught above the city of Ventura, 
20 miles south of Santa Barbara. The Thomas Fire started in December, far out of the bounds of fire season by historical standards. Besides its timing, it turned out to be noteworthy for another reason. Over the course of several weeks, it burned 440 square miles to become the largest wildfire in modern California history. Once the Thomas Fire scorched the city of Ventura, it continued north, keeping to the mountains like a hiker bent on finishing a trail. When it reached Santa Barbara, I began to hear details firsthand. Huge swaths of the city were placed under mandatory evacuation for weeks. Businesses along State Street shut down and restaurants lost holiday catering orders. Christmas was strange and subdued. My parents and local friends described the dread that hung over them, a constant gnawing, a sadness that hung heavy as the ash making every breath burn. Then in January, when it seemed like the fire was nearly contained, a flash flood caused mudslides in Montecito. Mudslide is a misleading word for what actually slid, boulders and branches and hundreds of tons of solid earth, sweeping houses from their foundations, severing electrical lines and killing 21 people. Wealth can insulate from many things, but not natural disasters. Like the illnesses and injuries that plagued my mom's patients, wildfires don't discriminate. Montecito, lush and tucked away from the lower neighborhoods, became the site of crisis. The lines that segregate the city blurred with this disaster. I clicked through images that seemed to belong to another world. Mansions crumpled, families without access to running water and electricity. One of the pictures on my screen showed residents holding signs on the freeway overpass. Thank you, firefighters, read one, while next to it, gracias, bomberos. If you were to visit Santa Barbara, I would take you to the corner near my dad's office, by the cheese shop and what was, for many years, a used bookstore. I would point over the palm trees and red-tiled roofs to the mountains, which are now catching and throwing off evening light, waiting to transfigure into flame. This is what I can tell you about my hometown. The hills are beautiful, and they burn. This has been the first episode of the BOQ podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you again soon. Your host for this first episode has been Sarah Hagen Hudspeth. Sarah writes in Petaluma, California, and graduated from the SPU MFA program in 2017. You can find her fiction in the St. Catherine Review. Mm-hmm.